Hey, everybody, welcome to the Big Ticket Variety and iHeart's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Mark Malkin. Today, I have two guests on the Big Ticket Wilson Cruz and Olivia Munn. First up, Cruz is here to talk about his trailblazing work as an openly gay actor and his new endeavor behind the camera as a producer of Visible out in television, Apple TV Plus's five part docuseries about the history of LGBTQ representation on television. Then later in the show, Munn reminisces about shooting her new Netflix rom-com ensemble Love Wedding Repeat in Italy, how she feels about dream weddings, plus she weighs in on the Harvey Weinstein sentencing. I'll be right back with Wilson Cruz. Welcome back to The Big Ticket. Here's Wilson Cruz. Hi, Wilson Cruz. Hi, Mark Malkin. Thanks for stopping by. I mean, we've only known each other for over a decade. Uh, I remember, no, more than a decade. Because yeah. I would see, when I first moved to LA, and I would see, and I'd be like, that's Wilson Cruz. And then you turn out to be such a nice guy. Well, <laughs> on a good day, yeah. <laughs> um, I have a lot to talk to you about. First, let's just start with Visible. Yeah. Tell us, what is Visible? Visible is seven years of my life. <laughs> um, Visible is a five-part uh, documentary. Each uh, episode is an hour long um, about the impact that television has had on the LGBTQ movement, but also how the LGBTQ movement has used the medium of television in order to tell the stories of LGBTQ people so that um, we can move the needle for acceptance. And... Um, we, we interview um, almost everyone that you could possibly think of mm -hmm. um, who's played a major part in um, the movement in terms of television. Um, and we've also interviewed activists who used television in, in their activism. Um, and um, some rarely seen clips uh, from throughout television history. Um, in order to tell the story of how we used this um, very intimate medium in order to tell the truth about LGBTQ people in our lives. What do you want people to get from it? Um, I want people to remember mm. um, that where we are today in terms of visibility um, was hard fought, that it was a concerted effort to use this medium in a productive way. Um, I want people to be inspired by it so that they continue the work, but also continue to push forward in terms of visibility so that we see m a more accurate depiction of who we are as a community. Um, but also remind people that this medium uh, can be used for good mm -hmm. and that we have used it for good. And hopefully we can inspire a new generation um, of, of, of activists and um, create uh, content creators to continue to push forward. And, and when, I'm, when I say push forward, I, I mean in terms of, of gender, of um, race, um, you know, uh, of lived experiences. Um, there's so much story left to, 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 to tell. So I, I hope that people are inspired by this in order to do so. What surprised you? What did you learn when you were doing, when you, so you said you got involved seven years ago. Yeah. I mean, I know, listen, I've been in the business for a little while, um, and I started my career off in the gay press, so I saw a lot of, you know, this is a few years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so I saw a lot of the moments that are part of the series. I remember when those moments happened. 
Um, and I felt like I knew a lot, but there were things that I was like, oh, oh. Yeah. What surprised you? What was one there's thing that so, stood out? There's so much that surprised me. Um, I have a long list of things. <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind is Tim Gunn. Mm-hmm. Tim Gunn surprised me because, you know, I think we approached Tim Gunn because we thought we'd get some great color commentary and right. we love him and he and he would was an interesting person to talk to who lived. Uh, well, here's the sad part. There aren't a lot of people from his generation that yep. we could talk to yep. um, because of the AIDS epidemic. Um, so we thought we would have Tim Gunn and talk about, you know, funny things. And he dropped a big old bomb on us. Yep in terms of his experience growing up and his relationship with his father, who was in the FBI and was very um, machismo, for lack of a better word. Um, That surprised me. I didn't know a lot about the advocacy that went into um, getting A Question of Love produced, Mm -hmm. which was a television movie that Jane Alexander and Jenna Rollins uh, starred in about a lesbian couple. I didn't even know about that. Yeah, and so, but that it came out of um, a response to a policewoman episode about um, uh, murderous lesbians who are killing elderly people for their their checks. Which just doesn't sound even real. Right, but (laughs) what I love about it is that they talk about how lesbians were invisible, that they kind of were under the radar and nobody really, you know, that in these, um, you know, network offices. And so they saw the script and brought, you know, and started to create real noise around it and then used this news story around this real life couple who was fighting for um, parental rights um, to get this this story told instead. So, you know, what what surprised me, well, what moves me about Mm -hmm. about so many of these stories is how people purposefully took action um, in order to be more visible as a, at a, in, a res, in response to their own invisibility. Mm-hmm. You know, I think people forget just, I think Marsha Warfield says this exact thing. She says, I think people forget just how invisible gay people were right. in the 50s and 60s. So there was a generation of, of this community that said, no more. And let's use this new thing, this newfangled thing mm-hmm. called television uh, that is in everybody's home and their bedrooms and their living rooms um, and really tell people who we are um, and make ourselves human um, as opposed to these villainous, demonic depictions and ideas of who we were at the time. I mean, I was surprised. I don't think I knew about this, but then I kind of maybe I had a memory of it. Not a memory of it happening, but there were activists who were like storming live television newscasts. Yeah. Walter Cronkite is in the middle of a newscast. Mark Siegel pops up in the middle of Walter of Cronkite's live newscast. newscast. And, you know, people are like, well, you know, that's some people I'm sure at the time thought, well, this is crazy. Maybe this isn't helpful. But, you know, what it was was it forced people to have a conversation right. about and why this man did this, right? And in the documentary, as they point out, it also inspired Walter Cronkite to do more LGBTQ Con- stories, yes. which which was the point. Which is the point. CBS yeah. was, you know, it's the 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 gold standard of news at, at the time. So if you have Walter Cronkite doing LGBTQ stories, and, that's amazing. And they ended up being friends for years. So um, Walter Cronkite learned something from right. that man who interrupted him. Um, Barbara Walters. 
you know, wouldn't let the story go. She wanted to make sure that his story was told. So, you know, activists also used television. Um, and we still do, yeah. you know. There's a whole organization called GLAAD that uses it. <laughs> um, do you recall the first time you ever saw yourself represented in, in as obviously as a Latino man, but as mm. a gay Latino on television? Well, I mean, as a Latino, the first person who comes to mind is Rita Moreno. Mm -hmm. You know, she was, she was and still is uh, a Puerto Rican icon and was a first on so many levels, you know, an Oscar award winner. Uh, in EGOT, um, she is, you know, and uh, she is my inspiration. You know, she when I did Rent on Broadway, I literally thought about her in West Side Story and just kind of did my version of that. But um, what happened the first time you met Rita? Um, well, I met her at the Glad Awards, and she was a huge um, supporter of Glad and and the movement, a great ally to us. Um, and I actually met her at a benefit that we both sang in. Mm. Um, and so, you know, I fawned, I fangirled for <laughs> sure. But, you know, the first time I, I, you know, I've said this before and I mean it, I stand by it. The first time I saw myself on television was when I saw myself on television. Um, there was no uh, gay, young, Latino, African-American even, anyone of color right. uh, who I could relate to, who spoke to my lived experience. and. That's why when My So-Called Life came around and, that's, and I read that script, um, that's why I knew how powerful and how useful this character and this series was going to be. Uh, it's why it meant so much to me. It's why I made an agreement with myself that if the show ever got on the air, I would come out to my parents because I knew I wanted to have um, a public conversation mm. about um, young people of color, LGBT, people of color um, and I could only do that if I were out you're 19 years old at the time. I was 19 I was I was about 20 by the time the show aired did you did you feel the weight of it then or um, do, you, do you or do you look back and you feel like maybe you felt the weight, but that's more of a mem more of like as time has gone by you realize what the, the I mean it was pivotal. it was huge. I think I think I knew exactly what my responsibility was. Wow. I think, you know, I think it was the innocence of youth, right? There was the naivete of youth, and mm -hmm. I had some of that, but I also had the boldness of youth. Mm -hmm. I think when we're young, and you see this in the documentary over and over, where you see young people um, who want to live out loud, and take the opportunity to do so um, when it, when it um, presents itself. And I think I was one of those people. I think I knew that I had an opportunity to make some noise, and I wanted to do that. When did you know you made a difference? Was there a moment? Um, you know, it's funny, because I talk about this, I've said this before, but when I was doing the show, when, when the show was on the air, not a whole, I didn't hear a whole lot from young people because I think so many people were of that age couldn't really talk about it, right? Or they probably they couldn't scared, approach you had to write a letter. Right. So who knows who's going to get that right. letter? Right. So it really, I really started to feel the effects of it because you have to keep in mind that my so called life has never been unavailable right. since it was canceled. 
which is crazy for a show that well, only lasted a year. Went, where everyone thinks it went right. on for so because many Because it was seasons. on a loop on MTV for so right. many years. So about four years after, um, once I started going out to the clubs in West Hollywood mm -hmm. and in New York, that's when people would start coming up to me and, and I would hear the stories of, you know, you changed my life or that character helped me see myself mm -hmm. or, you know, I didn't kill myself because I didn't feel alone. Uh, I spoke to my parents about who I was. Uh, you know, I came out to a teacher. I mean, there isn't a day, mm -hmm. and this is not an exaggeration, in 25 years where somebody has not shared how important Ricky Vasquez was to them. And, um, and that's really moving. It still brings, you know, it still moves me. It's yeah. still really um, moving to me to hear that because you wait a whole, some people wait a whole lifetime right. to have an impact with their work. And I started my career that way. So mm. the rest of the career was, you know, a little pressure to keep up with that, <laughs> you know? Was there, you know, listen, when you were out, I mean, this is, you know, er, people the weren't hot. out then. You no. Know? If anything, was, people were, were going back into the closet, closet because, because of the, of the yeah. Was there a time where, like, you said, oh, what have I done? I really just messed up my career for people. Or how am I going to get those roles that, maybe roles that you didn't even want, yeah. but just, you know, who at your team said, ooh. Well, I mean, early on, people on my team were not thrilled. Right. But... Let's be realistic. I am who I am. It's not like I'm walking around, you know, butch. But, you know, but and let's remember that there were people who thought Liberace was a straight, totally. you know, heartthrob. Yes. So, uh, you know, I think with in every career, right? Mm -hmm. You talk to any actor uh, who starts out young, there's always a lull of some sort where you're right. like, ugh, you know, my time is over. And I went through a period of that in the early 2000s where I was doing you know, guest spot after guest spot mm -hmm. and just just trying to stay alive, right? right? Just trying to keep my head above water. Um, and, you know, there were days, there were times during that period when I thought, oh, you know, maybe I made a mistake. Mm -hmm. But then I would think, yeah. who would I be? Who would I try right. to be? You know, I, could, I, have, I can only be this person, right. this authentic person. Um, and I also believed that because I was... Uh, being authentic in my life, that I could use all of that in my work. I could I couldn't do a double acting role, right? That's right. not I, I'm not that talented. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't act like a straight person and then, you know, take on a, another role at right. the same time, one role at a time, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so, uh, but I also think that it made me a better actor. Mm -hmm. I think m being honest with yourself is part of the job, and living as authentically as you can is part of the job because it informs everything. So. Mm -hmm. Um, I have no regrets. I, I, I went through a period where I wondered, mm -hmm. you know, what would have been different, but I have no regrets. What's your advice for a young LGBTQ actor right now? I mean, I, my, uh, my advice to an actor right now, LGBTQ or not, is study, right? Like, I think so many people decide, oh, I'm going to be an actor and don't really put the work into actually figure out how to do this. Mm -hmm. um, but what about the, you know, the LGBTQ kid, actor, you know, who says, should I hide who I am or not? Oh, I, I hope that, I hope that we've made it a little safer mm -hmm. 
uh, a lot safer uh, for someone to not even have that question, you know, mm -hmm. sometimes, I think at this point, you know, I think less and less people who are starting their careers um, are worried about um, the effects of being out on that career. Um, you know, now people come out like on an Instagram post or, you know, like a Twitter post. It's that, <laughs> it's that flippant of a, of a coming out, right. whereas before, you know, you'd have to call up the advocate and there'd be a, a cover and, you know, People Magazine and all this stuff, or Variety. Um, but um, I think people feel uh, more capable and willing to do that, and I hope that continues. And I would think, because you were out from the start, it protected you in circumstances, you know, talking about Me Too, where these we know we know the stories of gay actors who are taken advantage of with the threat of yeah. you tell anyone I'm going to out you. Yeah. Was oh yeah. Nobody was messing with protecting you from that. Oh, for sure. Um, I mean, there were people who are no longer with us mm -hmm. who, you know, offered their help if I were to be um, willing to help them in some way, right? Uh, physically, and I just. I was really capable of removing myself from those scenarios. Mm -hmm. um, Which I think comes from, I'm, I would say in part, from being out. You had that, you had yeah, that. Yeah, I didn't have you, to. You can't mess with me. I've been through that. Right, yeah, yeah. I, I, I had the power in that situation. Right. I, I held on to my own power in that way, yes, for sure. Um, but I was also really good at being charming and get myself out of, oh, look at you, oh, stop, I'm gonna go. You know, I would just, and I'd roll my eyes, but yeah. That, a lot of people weren't as lucky as I am in that, in that regard. Okay, we have to take a short break, but when we come back, Cruz recalls getting cast in Star Trek. Plus, he remembers his early auditions and what it took to finally land his first job. We'll be right back. Have you written a book and need some insight into what comes next? Or are you passionate about cooking and want to know how to make it your career? Or maybe you just want to hear insider stories about the entertainment industry. Either way, we've got you covered with the Two Guys from Hollywood podcast. I'm Alan Nevins, a literary agent and talent manager. And I'm Joey Santos, a columnist and celebrity chef. And on our podcast, Two Guys from Hollywood, we bring our expertise to the table with, of course, delicious cocktails and all kinds of recipes for you to try at home. So grab a drink and join us. We've got a wide range of celebrity guests and Hollywood insiders to discuss pop culture, publishing, and entertainment. And we'll provide you with an unfiltered and sometimes brutally honest show about Hollywood. As we like to say, we don't dish, we serve. Listen and follow Two Guys from Hollywood on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll talk at you soon. Welcome back to The Big Ticket. Here's more of Wilson Cruz. And let's talk about um, the AIDS epidemic. Because, yeah. I mean, listen, you have Peter Stolle on the, and he is... A, a, an icon. Uh, what I found fascinating, you know, Peter Stolle is one of the earliest AIDS activists, founder of ACT UP. What I found amazing is when he's talking about how they use television. Mm -hmm. I never, I 
guess I never really knew that, that they were really, because there was a lot of media people who were involved with you know, AIDS activism, and they knew mm -hmm. how to use the medium of television. Not only they used television, but they knew that they needed to be on 60 Minutes, because they knew that America, there, was, there were very few appointment TV um, opportunities that have lasted as long as 60 Minutes. Right. Like every, you know, so many people watch 60 Minutes, and this was at the height. I think we still only had three networks at that point. Right. So um, he knew, they knew, ACT UP knew that if they could get a 60-minute story, and they fought for it um, because they knew once they were on 60 Minutes that people would pay attention. Um, and within three years of that 60-minute story airing, they tripled the budget at the NIH right. in terms of AIDS research. So they were strategic. Mm. Um, yes, I didn't. I did. I knew. I knew they were strategic, and they knew they had to get attention. Yeah. And well, here's the thing. Pe people, ACT UP had been around, um, and they were being depicted as the angry gays. Right. But nobody talked about why they were angry. Mm -hmm. Right. They knew right. that it had something to do with AIDS, um, but I think they put. They literally put a human face on it, and Peter was that face. Yeah. He was everybody's son. Yeah. And I think they saw their own children in him. Mm. And he was literally fighting for his life. And in that story, he's asked, do you think you'll be around to right. see a cure? And he says, no, I think, you know, he, think, he thought and thinks in, in that moment that, you know, he was fighting for the lives of people who came after him. Um, and he still does that. Yeah. He still feels <laughs> that way. Um, I was Facebook. just with him last week, and they're yeah. still fighting the fight. So um, it was important to have Peter as a part of this. Because um, he literally did save our lives, all of us. So you're starting off in acting. You're going to your auditions. You're doing your thing. Yeah. One day I'm going to be on Star Trek. One oh. day I'm going to be <laughs> an openly gay couple on Star Trek. Yeah. Is that any is that anything that could have entered your mind? I mean, I used to watch Next Gen uh -huh. um, growing up. I was a teenager. It was, it was, that was my, my Star Trek. And I thought, oh, my God, it would be so freaking cool to be on Star Trek. And I really, all I wanted to do was like be on Broadway mm -hmm. and be in Star Trek. <laughs> uh, but I never thought either one, you know, like I never thought, I never thought that was going to be real. You know, it was right. just like it was a goal that you said and uh, it was a dream, really. Right. Um, so no, I never thought it would actually happen, um, especially since there hadn't been an openly gay character on my on Star Trek at all. So, um, you know, Anthony and I talk about it all the time um, that we find ourselves lucky and also feel responsible um, in some way to make sure that we get it right. And what I love about the show is that our sexuality is hardly a talking point you know right. it's really about love these two mm -hmm. people love each other and they also happen to be geniuses who live on board of a starship <laughs> and save the Just world that. with their friends <laughs> did you have uh, to do a chemistry read no i mean we've known each other for 20 years so mm -hmm. i think i think the network in the studio were like well they obviously know each other because they're two gay guys right you well, know, well, well they knew we had done rent right, together right so mm -hmm. but you know TV's fast, mm -hmm. as you know, and so it, there's not a whole lot of rehearsal time. And I think the reason why we work is because we use our actual friendship 
and love for each other right. as a foundation for creating this relationship. And it feels familiar and it feels, I, I hope anyway, I think for me anyway, it, it feels like these people have been together for a long time. And so I think that's because we really honestly like each other. So who found out, who got cast first? Oh, he did. He got cast so first. So he gets cast first. Yeah. Then. So he, here, he, he gets cast <laughs> first. I found out about it because I, I had reached out to Brian Fuller because I, I had let him know that when he was creating this that I would have loved to have been a part of it. Um, then he hands it over to, um, to Aaron and Gretchen and I reach out to them because I had done the finale of Pushing Daisies, this, right. the series finale. And they were like, you know, they reached down, they were like, we would love that. And they reached down, by the way, we're, we're casting Anthony Rapp. And I was like, I love him, I love Anthony Rapp. You're gonna love working with, they didn't know him, and I sent him a note. And then like a, two weeks later, they, I get the call that they, they wanna offer me the, the part of his partner, um, which was just recurring at the time. But I was like, yes, absolutely. And Did you, did you even know this part existed? or it just... I mean, uh, no, no, because I thought once they cast the Anthony that that was that it, was that was my chance. Yeah, right, there was right, the right. one gay character. Who right. knew that they were gonna have two? Um, uh, but they did, and... It was pretty seamless. I mean, once they offered it to me, I had to do like, uh, I had to put myself on tape with Aaron and Gretchen for the, the studio just because right. they, 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 they were more worried about if I looked old enough to be the doctor on Star Trek. So I guess I just let myself look haggard that day. <laughs> I <was just> Drawing <laughs> <laughs> wrinkles on right. your face? Right, didn't shave, I don't know. But um, it's such a great gig, I have to be, and like, we just finished season three and, um, you know, I actually get to do a lot more doctoring this season, mm -hmm. and um, and they've given me this really epic storyline. You know, this is a man who has who falls in love and is in a great relationship, and then is killed and comes back to life, and so is a better it's so is, a, is a better doctor now <laughs> because of it. It's just it's it's a great it's a great part. It's one of it's maybe the best part I've had. Tell me the moment where you and Anthony are on set and you just look at each other going. Holy Well, shoot. I'll tell you. The, the moment was when we had our first kiss. It was mm -hmm. the first gay kiss on Star Trek. Right. And, well, actually, you know, even before that, when we did our, we did a scene where our characters are revealed to be a couple um, and we're brushing our teeth just like a normal couple would at the, at the end of the night. And before we shot that scene, we just kind of turned to each other and looked at each other like, this is really happening. Like, we get to do this. This is a, this is a big deal. Um, but we have that moment all the time. I mean, I think when you're walking around the set, I mean, if, if you ever visit the set, you'll see it's very immersive. You feel like you're on a starship. It's crazy because okay. it's huge. It's a huge set. Um, but we have that moment all the time where we look at each other and just say, we're on Star Trek. <laughs> this is weird. Good, I love that. I love that. <laughs> we do. We're very aware. Um, two fun questions and then I'll let you go. Um, your first audition ever, whether you got the role or not. Oh, you know, it was probably a commercial, mm -hmm. which I was really bad at. <laughs> and I, to, you know, I only had a commercial agent for like five years. And it was, prop, you know, it was like a Spanish, because at the time it was like 1991, 92. Uh, and I only had a, I only had a commercial agent. So I went on all these really terrible like McDonald's Spanish commercials, you know, where they, would, they didn't even have copy. 
they would give you like an English version and then ask you to translate it. It was very what? yeah. And I didn't get any of those. <laughs> I didn't get I like I I begged to be let in for my first audition for um, a television show um, that I was wrong for because they wanted three white boys to play choir boys on this this series for that uh, Tobey Maguire was starring in. It was called Great Scott on Fox, and they wouldn't see me because I wasn't white. And so I kind of stormed Sally Steiner's office mm -hmm. and kind of begged her to see me, and she did because I wouldn't relent. And um, she got me that part. She was like, you're a freaking fighter, so wow. come on. And so that I got my SAG card, and because I got my SAG card from that show, I was able to audition for my so-called life the following season. And what's the one? So go and do your own things, kids. <laughs> Storm go. the casting agents. Yes. <laughs> Don't tell them I told you, though. <laughs> and what's the one TV show you can watch over and over again, and it just never gets boring? Oh, there's so many. Honestly, I just recently, I'm going to say this because I just go recently ahead. did this, Six Feet Under. Yeah, why? Um, I just think the acting on there is brilliant, and the, it was always... Uh, unexpected, you never knew where it was going, and I just loved that family. And the series finale of Six Feet Under is my favorite hour of television ever. I wow. think it's just impeccably written. It's the best series finale I've ever seen, um, and it's really moving. And that Sia song, well, every time I hear it, <laughs> breathe, I'm undone by it, just because I remember that episode. Motion first, thank you for stopping by. Thank you for having me, Mark. That was Wilson Cruz. Visible out on television is available now on Apple TV+. Coming up after the break, Olivia Munn. We talk weddings, Tiger King, and Harvey Weinstein. I'll be right back. Welcome back to The Big Ticket. Here's Olivia Munn. So how are you surviving in coronavirus world? Um, I'm surviving and very grateful. Yeah. You, you hear how many people are struggling and how many people are not surviving. And uh, it's, it's definitely surreal. You know, mm -hmm. I, um, I had um, two friends die unexpectedly actually within a, a week and a half of each other. And that was such a crazy, very surreal experience. Um, they're both young. One was actually uh a very new mother. She had her baby one day and then passed away unexpectedly the next. Another friend of mine, my best friend from high school, and she was diagnosed with colon cancer just a couple weeks before and then died. And they, we thought that she had more months of fighting and all that. And so um, it, it's a very surreal feeling to go through a loss like that because feels like it didn't really happen, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So much a part, so much a part of grief is the the grieving of it and the community of it and grieving together with people and being able to hug my friends' moms or husbands and um and say goodbye. And so it's um a, a very strange dreamlike state to not be able to say goodbye to people. Mm -hmm. And that when you get on the other side of this, it's like Oh, and they're not there. And because uh, right now, no one, you know, we're all, you know, sheltering down. So um, there is this feeling of 
you know, being on an island, right? We're all on our own little individual islands and you think, okay, but on the other side, you know, we'll all reunite again. And, um, and I think that that's probably been the, the, the most heartbreaking thing for me during this, you know, is, is not being, you know, not being able to, to grieve and say goodbye properly. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Um, were you, were you working on anything? Were you in production on anything when all of this went down or? I was in pre-production um, on some stuff. I sold a show to Amazon um, that we've been working on and writing and, and doing that. So that was pre-production on that. Um, some other scripts I was writing um, that we were on, um, you know, final stages of. So uh, I was, I'm lucky to say that it was just all pre-production stuff that right. it was all stuff that would be, do, we'd be doing, you know, from home and office anyways. Right. Um, and I, I did have a, I had a movie um, I was really proud of that uh, Justine Bateman wrote and directed right. um, and that got into South by Southwest into the competition. I saw, yeah. Yeah. And so um, I was really happy for Justine to, you know, to have that experience and was really proud of her. You know, she, it's her first time directing a, full-length feature film and I was just really excited for her and uh and there's a lot of conversation leading up to like is South by Southwest gonna get canceled we don't know it was just and and it was really difficult because to make that decision because I didn't know like really what to do you know I'm like I was looking at like all these big corporations were canceling and I called Justine and I was like you know I mean if you go I'll go you know I'll, I'll be there to support you but you're kind of waiting for like like it's almost like you're waiting for the parents to say no, we're not going to go. <laughs> and if nobody says that, then you know you you go because you. I think if you're built like a lot of us um, here in America, which is you know we we want to be team players. We all want to you know show up for each other. And as a person of Asian descent, what's your reaction when you see the racism that just sprout? You know, just automatically, it's just this world. Just everyone's looking for scapegoats. Yeah, it's, I think, you know, it's, it's really disappointing to hear that. It's very scary and it makes me, um, you know, scared for myself, my family members, friends, other people, um, you know, within the Asian community, you know, it's, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, like you just said, it boils down to people wanting someone to blame or they need a target to take out their frustrations and anger, you know? So, um, you know, it's, that seems such like an archaic response that I, it didn't seem real at first. I thought that's, that's, that's great. I mean, that seems crazy. And then you hear the president saying it like that and you just think, I mean, it's just um, like when there, when there is violence, um, amongst, you know, party lines when there are, you know, Trump supporters who are, um, you know, fighting, you know, or beating down somebody or attacking somebody else. We don't, we don't call it like, you know, the Trump violence, right. <laughs> even like that. Um, so, you know, it's, um, I, to me, it's just been, it's just a scary time. And I just, I'm really grateful for the people you know, and the media that have like, you know, put out those stories so that people can, so that there's a lot, there's a lot more support. You know, that's the thing is that when there's, when people get, 
shamed by the community when the whole world, you know, and, and media and people were looking at blogs and social media and saying like, this is happening. That's crazy. That's right. like, it's obscene so that you, you end up uh, getting a lot more support, I think. And so hopefully like that's, that that's waning, but I mean, I mean, I, I, it's a hard thing to, what do you think about it? It's just not something that I thought of until we started seeing the reports of it. Like, how do you even go there? I know. Like, I didn't think it was a, it was a group of people who are to blame for it. But then, you know, you talk to gay men of a certain age and they're like, yep, this is what AIDS was. You know, it was mm-hmm. gay men were being attacked. They were being blamed for it. And I'm like, yep, that's sort of the same thing. And I think it's just people look for scapegoats. They just, it, I don't know if it gives them a sense of control or a sense of explaining it because mm-hmm. there's no way of explaining this, um, that you find something that you latch onto. And, you know, the fact is we have a lot of racist people in this country. So let's talk about escapism from this crazy upside down world, which you're yeah. providing some of that. Love, wedding, repeat. Yes. Yeah. My, my husband and I were laughing. <laughs> oh, yay. Have you watched it then? Yes, of course. Oh, yeah. Exciting. It's really sweet. It's just it's a nice break. Didn't have to think about coronavirus and got to see uh-huh. a fun, silly rom-com. Well, that's exactly what we actually wanted it to be, you know, um, you know, received like by people. We wanted it to be this really light, fun, romantic comedy. Um, and we have this great ensemble cast, of, you know, all these amazing British actors and comedians and um, an Irish comedian actually with Ashlyn B. Um, but uh, they were just the most fun people to work with. And that's what I really loved about the script was that it was this this really fun romantic comedy with an ensemble cast, which is, you know, I think for me, like a dream come true. So how did you get involved? So this movie actually came to me, I'd say like a year and a half or so before I actually, um, maybe that long, uh, maybe just a year before uh, we filmed, but it was with a different director. Mm. And then the director, uh, he, his TV show ended up getting picked up on, um, I think the BBC. And so he couldn't uh, direct it, but then the writer of the film, Dean Craig, um, sat down with me and, and, and asked if I would be okay if he directed it. And, uh, and so I said, yeah, of course, you know, I, I love Dean, thought he was such a great guy. And, um, and so then once that happened, I think they were trying to figure out the dates with the other director for a while. That's why it took so long. Then once they, you know, once Dean was on and then it was, and we locked in Sam Claflin after that, and then all the other pieces fell in place. So give us a little log line. Give us a brief summary of what happens in this crazy little rom-com. <laughs> well, <laughs> this movie is, um, like I said, it's a lighthearted romantic comedy about the choices you make and how those can change the course of your destiny. Um, it's, it's really interesting. Um, it's like this you know, fantasy about how things can go right, even if they go wrong at first. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it was a based off this French film called Plan de Table, I think is how you pronounce it. I don't speak French, so I'm I don't probably either. that. <laughs> but it looks like Plan de Table, <laughs> um, which um, I understand to be like the table placements and settings. And so the movie is like, um, it's like if everybody sat at a table and, you know, you have your place settings and 
what if things were just changed slightly and now everybody was sitting in a different seat? So how could everything change from that one moment? Um, and just those small choices that really just completely change your life. So in this movie, um, Sam Claflin um, plays Jack and he is at his sister's wedding and Jack has a history of bad luck. He just kind of always, um, you know, right about to have really good luck and it just kind of all just disintegrates for him for some reason. So he and my character, Dina, had met, um, you know, a year or so before and we had a spark. There's a moment, but of course, with his bad luck, it didn't come to fruition. And at this wedding, he finds out that I'm there and this is, and my character and his character, they had, you know, they think they've always been kind of wondering like, what if, what if? And so during the film, we see, you know, if their seats were next to each other, what, what would it be like? And then if they were separated, what it would, what life would be like. And in the midst of all of that, we've got a lot of different dynamics where, you know, Sam's character's, you know, ex-girlfriend is at the table with her new fiance, who's really pissed about, you know, Sam being there and you've got, you know, amazing character actors like um, Joel Fry and Tim Key, Jack Farthing, like Ashlyn B, who's so funny. So I fun. think during this filming, I, I could not, I, I want to do, I want to do every, almost every project if I can with Ashlyn and Tim <laughs> Key. They make me laugh so hard. They're just the funniest people. I just was just, I mean, enamored with them. So where did you shoot? We shot in this 17th century Villa Parisi in Frascati, and, which is like uh, like 13 miles outside the, of central Rome. Wow. And it was beautiful. It was, it's like what you think about with Rome. It's these, right. these amazing castles and like all this, like, you know, vineyards and greenery. And it was just beautiful. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I got to spend like a little over a month in Rome working. That's not bad. That's not bad. No, it was amazing. <laughs> We worked, we got to, we had a, you know, an Italian crew. And so, you know, I, we'd be, you know, learning, you know, Italian. I was there, can't remember any of the Italian, <laughs> um, but, uh, but we, we love being able to work with this Italian crew and, and, and with everybody, you know, it was an ensemble. So we're all get, getting to hang out together all right. the time and, and laugh. You know, this is like what you, I think what, for me, what you dream of, you know, just to go to work and laugh every day. So do you like weddings? You know, what's funny is I've only gone to, I'm going to say four weddings in my life. Really? Maybe five total. Definitely no more than like one hand. Yeah. I don't go to a lot of weddings, but the weddings I have gone to, I do find boring. (laughs) Like, I'm like, like, I feel like also, I always think this is interesting at weddings I feel like the wedding part is really for whoever's marrying them because you only see the backs of your friends' heads. Right. And then I never like, understood that. I never. I know. Understood. And I'm like, why am I just sitting here, like looking at the back of your head? And it's, it's a big performance for whoever you've just booked. Like this is like this is amazing. We get to watch them do this whole thing, and then, and then after that, you know, we've got like, um, you know, the the dinners the party you know, it just feels like every time i've been to them it has it's been like um there's just it can be quite boring do you like what um i have 
I've been to some that are boring. Mm-hmm. I've been to some that are fun. It depends on my mood. My husband and I, we just got married at the Beverly Hills Courthouse for an wow. afternoon, went to lunch afterwards with a bunch of friends. And that was it. That's- that's very, that's very Carrie Bradshaw of you. Very Carrie that's literally Bradshaw. what she did. She got to the courthouse and they went to have lunch at like a diner. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. Do you have a yeah. dream? Do you have a dream wedding for yourself or? No, I've, ne- I've never, I never have ever been that girl. And I, right. I'll hear about friends going, and I've just never um, been the person that's like, oh, I can't wait to get married. I can't, I can't, this is what it's going to be like. Um, what my ring would be. I don't have, I don't really have any of those. It actually, the idea of getting married has always kind of made me a little like, um, like, uh, it gives me like, a, I, I don't know what that, what that, what that word is for like, uh, like, ah, uh, like, uh, I'm like, is this a, it's hot in here, right? It's like, <laughs> it's like, really? Do we, I just didn't, um, I, yeah, it just felt like to pick one person forever. And also like the dynamic of, like, how can you have a friendship like that goes on for all, you know, like all of my friendships I love, but the dynamic in a romantic relationship, you know, I just, like, I, I just didn't, I have a harder, I, I, I don't know. I just, the idea of like, I'm like, maybe I just haven't found like the one that I'm like, oh yeah, I can see this way, you know, like. Well, for me, when my husband and I got together, I told myself, we're not getting married, by the way. Like, mm-hmm. that's not a thing. That's nothing I dreamt about. It's not happening. And he always dreamed about it. He always had, like, I want to get married. I want the guy on one knee, the whole thing. Oh, wow. And then it was during when we were already living together. But it was during the Supreme Court. And then gay marriage became legal. And I got mm-hmm. very emotional about it. And I was very, obviously, vocal about it. And he's like, I don't understand. You're so emotional about it. But why don't you want to get married? I'm like, it's not something I thought about. And then one night out of nowhere, didn't plan it. I just said to him, I said, you want to do it? And he's like, uh-huh. what? And I said, get married? He's like, you're kidding. I'm like, I'm not kid about that. He's like, fine, you have to get down on one knee. I know, I was about to ask you. I was like, he just told you. He wanted you. Well, the, the best was our first Christmas together. I bought him a signet ring, you're like from Tiffany's. Uh-huh. And as he's, we're only together at that point, like six months. And he's uh-huh. opening the box and it hit me. Oh, and you're like, and I screamed, it's not an engagement ring. <laughs> it's not, it's not that ring. It's not that ring. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I ended up finding the guy and it's the best thing I've ever done. I Aww. advise everyone to do it. That's great. We're going to take another quick break, but when we return, Mun, a longtime animal rights activist, sounds off on Tiger King. I've got one word for you. Tom Cruise. On this new weekly podcast, Meeting Tom Cruise, we're going to talk about Tom Cruise. We're going to talk to people who have met Tom Cruise. Why? Because Tom Cruise is the greatest movie star of all time. Is he, though? Shut your mouth. Everyone who has met him has an amazing story to tell. And that's where I met Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. When I hear the bathroom door open, and it's Tom Cruise. Hey, everybody, I'm Jeff Meacham. You might know me as Josh Openhold from TV's Blackish, and I'm here with the Goose to My Maverick. Hey, I'm Joel Johnstone, and you might know me as Archie and the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And I'm Alex. 
Alec Lev, and you might... No, no one knows you from anything. Listen, we love Tom Cruise. We are inspired by Tom Cruise. But while we live and work in Hollywood, we've never actually met Tom Cruise. So we're going to talk to some people who have, and maybe one of them will lead us to the man himself, so we can have our own stories of meeting Tom Cruise. Does it really have to just be about Tom Cruise? Shut up! Why are you here?! Listen to Meeting Tom Cruise on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Big Ticket. Here's Olivia Munn. One thing you've been doing uh, during all of this crazy pandemic is you've been promoting flustering dogs. Tell me about yeah. that. Um, well, that's just been really um, such an important cause right now because of, uh, you know, like right now, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has really created this unprecedented animal sheltering crisis in the Mm -hmm. U.S. And, you know, there's all these homeless pets with nowhere to go and they're at risk of being euthanized right now. Right. And, uh, and of course, like right now, people don't always know this, but like right now it's like, it's like puppy and kitten season. Mm -hmm. So there's already this increase in animals going into shelters and um, without people without the walking traffic of people going in to the shelters, um, the animals aren't finding homes right now. So um, myself and, and WAG partnered with greatergood.org to promote this thing called Stay Home and Foster. Um, mm-hmm. And if you go to stayhomeandfoster.org, basically you can s- sign up and then it will connect you to a shelter near you. And wow. then they will start to show you like animals that are in need of a home that you could foster and or adopt if you, if you needed to, if you wanted that, um, in your life. I mean, having a, an animal or a pet in your life, um, you know, it's so great for, you know, the animal of course, but also for people in the situation right now too, during isolation, it's really great for depression and anxiety and just having something else to, to care for is a really great thing to have in times like this. And obviously you're a big animal rights advocate activist mm-hmm. advocate yeah so have you watched tiger king yes and i'm also from oklahoma oh my god so, okay so go tell me what you think <laughs> well i was just i mean it was just a hot mess of a of a world and you know they're you know animals like this should really be free to you know big cats it really you know so many animals that like deserve to live their life out in with I know outside of captivity. It's so important. And um it was just a very sad, it was just a very it was very sad. I mean, it was, you know, there's a lot of entertaining elements to it, but to me it just came off as just really sad. And you see what these animals are going through and how people just treating them like currency and there's no emotion or connection to it at all. And, you know, and there's there's such a um I think a lack of empathy, not just for the people who are profiting off of this, but the people who pay to have these experiences with these animals. You know, um, when when you go to resorts around the world, and they say you can go swim with the dolphins, those right. dolphins are in captivity, and yeah. it's horrific. And they're and the do- dolphins are like incredibly intelligent mammals and yet they um, are forced to live in basically if somebody put us into our swimming pool and said stay there for the rest of your life Mm. and uh it's basically if we were in isolation right now you know it's an interesting thing because 
because you know we you know Joe Exotic talks about being in prison and how you know he feels so horrible because he you know imprisoned his animals for so long. But what really is an important thing for people to understand is not just the people like Joe Exotic or even the the Carol Baskin who has tigers in, in you know in her sanctuary there that you know if she really does care about animals then she should go find other sanctuaries that have so much more property for these animals to roam freely and to be able to live their best life in those that situation because they're not in the cages at her place either but um what's really important i think the most important takeaway from tiger king is that that the, the public consumers customers that we are responsible for saving these animals as well because mm. if we don't pay for those experiences these people can't make money and profit off of that so these animals will become um invaluable you know or unvaluable to them being from oklahoma did you know anything about this joe exotic or his zoo no. that he had no i mean i had no idea but um you know i i don't think that's a reflection of oklahoma no. either. i think that you know you know from you know, everything I know about being raised in Oklahoma, you know, uh, my family's in Oklahoma, like, you know, a lot of people who really love and care about animals and care about, um, you know, being humane and um, treating, you know, everything with kindness. So this is a very um, startling, very important, you know, Although it's very entertaining for people, what the important thing is for people to realize that that things like this go on even if you don't know about it. Right. And and it's really important for people to see that like all the people who want it, it's so cute to hold a baby tiger or a baby, you know, um, cheetah or a you know baby monkey and everybody wants to do those things, but it's but all you're doing is you're aiding in the abuse and that if you pay for any of these experiences, even if it's something as small as I just want a picture with a, you know, with me swimming with dolphins or holding a tiger, that you are um, complicit in the abuse and exploitation of these really special animals. How many dogs do you have now? I have my two, Frankie and Chance. Um, mm -hmm. They um, I rescued both of them. Oh. Um, we actually, they, people could see them across the country right now, nationwide campaign with the Humane Society and mm -hmm. the Shelter Pet Project to get people to want to rescue shelter pets. Um, and so uh, they're just so great and so sweet. Um, I love them. They're like, it's like just the best. They're, my, my older dog, Chance, mm -hmm. he's being uh, trained to be a service dog to go into nursing homes and children's hospitals. His, his favorite thing in life is to love and be loved. It's like his, he is just the most social dog. He just loves it. Mm. And so my brother and his girlfriend, whenever I have to go film, they'll take my dogs for me and, and, and watch them for me. And so in Virginia, where they are, they, um, you know, they're, he's been going through the school. And so that way, when I'm on set and I'm traveling, this is what he can be doing is going into nursing homes and Awesome. <laughs> I know. It's like if you ever if you ever get a chance to be around him, you'll see like his favorite thing in the world is just saying hi to people. He loves it so much. It's just mm. I feel like it's it's my duty as you know his you know dog mother to <laughs> to fulfill this this thing for him because that's definitely his life's purpose. I think. Now I know you've tweeted about Harvey Weinstein and the verdict. 
Where do you, what do you think is the next step? What's next? Um, well, I, I think it's important that we keep holding people accountable for their actions. I think that it's important that we continue to support people who speak out. Um, I think it's, um, you know, it's important to also call out the people who are complicit in keeping these people in positions of power because right. it was um, beneficial for them as well. And, uh, you know, I think it's it's always really important in, throughout any of this is to, you know, people need to speak out, name names, and, you know, and, and we need to, to believe them. And there has to be, you know, but, you know, we need to also... You know, I, I said this before when it comes to a lot of this stuff is that, you know, when when uh, when you hear about something that's been written about in a newspaper mm-hmm. or um, a publication like Variety, Hollywood, New York Times, LA Times, you know, any publication, for them to actually write the story, for the publication to write the story, th- there has to be a lot of evidence to support it because the lawyers would never let the publication go forward um, with that story. So if you've read about it, in a legitimate publication know that there was enough evidence to support this person calling calling out you know a, an abuser and mm. so it's important to believe them when you hear these stories that go out um you know it's also important to um for people to come forward with evidence and or witnesses and people they spoke to at the time anything that helps to validate that because it's really important that there are um there are things that support people speaking out and calling out people because because that's the one thing that keeps it from becoming something where people can say that oh it's just everybody is just calling people out without any evidence or without um saying you know uh, that, that anybody is, is at risk for being called out. Right. It's just like kind of a cancel culture, which is not the case. You know, um, like I said, with when in publications, you know, people are getting called out. And the truth is that if somebody gets called out and it's not true, then then there would be a defamation case against them. Right. right. And, you know, there hasn't been. So uh, it's really important for us to, to believe people when they speak out, um, especially when you read it in legitimate publications. And it's also important for people who speak out to name names so that people can know who not to work with and also to help save other people who may, you know, have been suffering from, you know, an abuse that they, they had to endure at the hands of this person. And so, you know, there is strength in numbers. Um, it's also important for people to come forward with, you know, the right evidentiary support so that... Um, you know, it, it can be easier, easily believed. And that's, a, that is important because it just, it's not enough just to say something and that's, and that's the truth. People want to think that it is, but it, it just, it's not, um, you need to be able to, to have the, some, some support to it. If it's, you know, if you have enough support that a publication will go out with it, then that's good. Right. Um, you know, until then, you know, it, you have to be careful because if you say something, you don't have the stuff to back it up. You could put you into a real legal situation that's going to be tough to get out of and and very costly. So that's why I stress 
as well in this is that, you know, we need to believe people, but the people who come, you know, who want to speak out, I just implore you to have the right evidentiary proof to support what you're saying so that you don't get into a very costly legal battle. Do you, do you hear from people still saying, I want to speak out? I have, I have something that happened to me, but I'm too scared. Yeah. I get connected with people a lot through, um, different avenues and different people. And they, I, I get, um, people talking to me a lot. And, um, there are times when I've, I've heard stories and I say, you know, um, look, I'm sorry that happened to you. Um, but if this person was in the public eye, you know, you wouldn't really be telling the story. And, um, and really that's a situation that, you know, you weren't, um, you know, it's one of those live and learns, you know, it's not, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, there's nothing the person did. They did something morally wrong, but not illegal. And, and I would, and I, I do suggest to people, you know, not to speak up this, you know, that person doesn't sound like a a great person or that anybody I want one of my friends to date, but, um, it's not enough to, to, to take down their career and Mm -hmm. to, um, and to put yourself into a, a, you know, a very difficult, very costly legal situation. There are other times when I tell people, um, a hundred percent, uh, what happened to you was horrible. And, um, and it is, you know, from what my understanding is, it seems like there is, you know, uh, uh, you, 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 whatever happened, if, if, if it is true is enough to go forward and, and to let the world know about this. However, you don't have enough evidentiary proof. You have, there, there isn't any friend that you told during that time. There isn't text messages that you share with someone, you know, you don't, you don't have anybody that can support what you're saying. And I'm not saying that I don't believe, I'm just saying I don't want you to get into a situation where you could be sued for defamation. So although I, I hear what you're saying, and it's horrible, you, you shouldn't go forward. And then there have been times where I have said to people, you need to go forward. You have everything. You will be protected. You will be protected by um, everything that happened around it, how many people you told, what other, what other proof you have, what steps you took, whether you um, reported it to producers, whether you, whether you report it to um, a boss, whether you report it to, you know, you if you've done taken those steps um, and I see all that, then I have encouraged people to go forward and they have because of that. So, yeah, I still, you know, I'm still in communication with people and I, and I try to, to give them the best um, advice that I think um, I can. Um, and it's not always going to be, yes, go forward and do that. Um, and it's not always going to be like, I don't think that you should, you know, it, it just depends on every situation. That was Olivia Munn. Love Wedding Repeat is available on Netflix tomorrow, April 10th. Thanks for listening to The Big Ticket. Coming up next week, Sandra O oh talking about the new season of Killing Eve. Until then, make sure to follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mark Malkin. See you next time. Bye.